0: 1 Samuel chapter 18, where we will be considering uh, the entire chapter this morning. You'll remember that chapter 17 ended with Saul asking about David, who is this young man's father? David's clearly someone that Saul wants in his court, but before that can happen, Saul needs to know more about David's background, David's pedigree. Saul knew David before, but remember David was just a lowly court musician but now David is moving up the ranks, so Saul wants to know about David's family. Are they from good stock? All of that to say, chapter 17 and 18 go together. 18 describes the aftermath of David's victory on Saul's kingdom. So let's pick it up in verse 1 and give our attention to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. Verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did this day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled his spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice." Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my eldest daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Maholothite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may it be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged on the king's enemies." Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Father, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and given to us for our instruction and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. God, we pray that You would help us to hear the truth that You have breathed out in this chapter, and that we would be conformed by Your Word, that we would not sit in judgment over the Scriptures, but the, judgments, the Scriptures would sit, sit in judgment over us. That Your Word would have the authority in our lives, and we would adjust ourselves to what You have said. We pray, Father, for ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe. Father, I pray that You would give me grace that I would speak truth from the Scriptures, and that You would give Your people discernment to know the truth from error, and that we all might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Goliath is dead and everything is different. That would be a good summary for 1 Samuel chapter 18. Goliath is dead and everything is different. It was only one day, the day that David killed Goliath, but that one day proved to be a historic watershed moment for God's people. In fact, it would not be an exaggeration to say David's victory has turned the nation of Israel upside down. Overnight, David goes from an unknown shepherd to a national sensation. Songs are being written, stories are being told. He's he's a trending topic in Israel, if they had such a thing. Goliath's fall has kicked off David's rise. That's the story of 1 Samuel 18. But there's another side to that story, isn't there? In order for David to rise, someone else besides Goliath has to fall, at least in the public eye. And that someone is Saul. I'm sure you followed it when we read the passage. The change in Saul's attitude is alarming. At the outset of the chapter, Saul is eager to elevate David, even giving him command over the army. But by the end, it's just the opposite. Saul is looking for any way possible to get rid of this young upstart. This is clearly an unstable man. While the nation rejoices, Saul broods and he schemes. And yet for all of his scheming, Saul cannot stop David's rise. He can't stop him. Goliath is dead and everything is different. Before we dig into the exposition on this text, I want to spend a few minutes looking at the chapter as a whole. Sometimes these narrative passages are intimidating... At least they are to me. You, we can follow the action easily enough, but we're not always sure what's the main idea. Where should I be, be focusing? Well, in God's kindness, First Samuel 18 is a good place to slow down for a moment and learn a little more how we should read these kinds of texts. So if you'll bear with me, I just want to do a few minutes here on how we should read the Bible. This is one of the reasons why we preach through books of Scripture. We're trying to build better Bible readers. I like how John Piper has put it, we don't just want to eat the feasts that someone else prepares, we want to get in the kitchen and learn how to prepare the feasts ourselves. So that's what I want to do here for just a minute, just a few moments. Lord willing, let's learn a little bit more how to read these kinds of texts. There's two features to this chapter that should clue us in as to where we should focus. The first is repetition. Repetition. At key moments, the chapter repeats a specific word. Success. And each time it's in connection with David. Look with me. Verse 5, David went out and was successful. Verse 14, David had success. Verse 30, David had more success than all the servants of Saul the repetition focuses our attention. Beginning, middle, and end, the chapter is stressing the same thing. God's work to elevate David to new heights. Life in the kingdom now runs through this man whom God has chosen to be the king. That's the effect of the repetition. This is the Holy Spirit's way of saying to us, look at this. This is where I want you to focus. The second feature that helps us is alternation. There's repetition, but there's also alternation. This chapter is like a pendulum. As, David, as David's success grows, people are forced to respond to him, and their responses swing back and forth from the positive to the negative. Notice with me how it goes back and forth. In verses 1 to 4, Jonathan loves David, but in verses 8 to 11, Saul is jealous. It goes back to love in verse 16 as all Israel and Judah love David, only to swing right back in verses 17-19 to as Saul schemes. Finally, verse 20 takes us back to love again as Michael loves David. And then it goes right back once more to Saul's fear in verse 29. You see how it swings? Back and forth the chapter goes. And each turn gives us a different response to David. Repetition, alternation. When you put those features together, you get a better sense of how to read the chapter. The repetition shows us God's plan to exalt His King. And the alternation reminds us the dividing line of humanity is how you respond to that King. Repetition, exalt the King. Alternation, how you respond to that King. Friends, that's the significance of this chapter. This is about more than politics in ancient Israel. This is ultimately about the kingdom of God. This is about the kingdom of God and how my life and your life needs to be oriented to live in that kingdom. You see, it's a truly powerful chapter that will prove to be full of much contemporary significance. The repetition and the alternation come together to compel us to compel us to examine our lives in light of this One whom God is determined to raise up, His King. Brothers and sisters, you can read the Bible this way. You can read the Bible this way. There isn't some mystical secret to fruitful Bible study. All we've done here is slow down long enough to catch the way that the text itself is guiding our attention. You see? There are two essential practices for reading your Bible well. Pray consistently and read slowly. Pray consistently and read slowly. Most of the time, we're simply reading too fast. We're reading too fast and we miss the ways that the Spirit has put the Scriptures together to serve us And guide us in our study. God's Word will tell you where to focus. Pray consistently. Read slowly. And over time, you'll find yourself feasting more and more on your study of God's Word. Well, that's enough for now on interpreting the Scriptures. Let's turn our attention to the feast that is before us in this chapter. There are three truths we need to notice in this text. And again, each one comes in connection with David. We're taking the repetition and the alternation, and we're just seeing where it takes us. There's three truths. The first is found in verses one to five, where we see devotion to God's king. Devotion to God's king. Of all the people in Israel who might despise David, Jonathan would seem the most likely candidate. Think about it Jonathan is the king's son. He is the next in line for the throne. Of the entire nation, Jonathan has the most to lose. From the world's perspective then, these men should be mortal enemies. They should hate one another. And yet, amazingly, that's not what happens. Instead of rivalry, what blossoms here is friendship and that of an incredible kind. At the foundation of this relationship is a God-honoring love for one another. Notice verse 1 says, Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. Now that should sound familiar to you. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, that's what we have here. That's what verse 1 is giving you. This is the kind of love that sums up and fulfills God's Word. This is a self-sacrificing love that points beyond itself to the very love of God for His people. That's why this relationship is so noteworthy. Because it's founded on the kind of love God's Word demands of God's people. Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. At this point, we have to address a question that I sincerely wish were not necessary. But sadly, it's an issue that's too prevalent to ignore. And I just want to get it out of the way in this chapter, because Jonathan's going to be around for a few chapters, and let's just deal with it now. A number of so-called biblical scholars, and I say so-called there, please note that, a number of so-called biblical scholars read verse 1 and see a sexual relationship between Jonathan and David. Their argument is this language is too strong to be describing friendship. It has to be implying and therefore normalizing something more. And listen, if you can just go take, take a commentary off a shelf at a run-of-the-mill Christian bookstore and you, you might read this. Alright? Friends, that argument says more about us than it does the text. It says more about us than it does the text. It shows how warped our minds have become by our sexually saturated culture. There is zero indication of an inappropriate relationship between Jonathan and David. Zero. It's nowhere to be found in the language of this verse or any other verse describing the two men. When the Old Testament wants to describe that kind of intimate relationship between two people, it uses a very specific word. Adam knew his wife Eve. That word's never used between these two men. It does violence to God's Word to suggest otherwise. To suggest otherwise is to mishandle God's Word on purpose in order to mislead God's people. These men were bound by a deep sense of love. And listen, if our minds struggle to grasp How two men could love one another in this kind of way, then we need to examine ourselves and repent for how our minds have been shaped more by the culture than the scriptures. Verse one has no hint of sin. There's no hint of sin at all in this friendship. And instead, it pictures for us the profound kind of love that exists between two followers of the Lord, love that honors the Lord Himself. Let's keep going. We see that Jonathan's love was not simply an emotion that he felt toward David. It was rather a love expressed in action. Notice how Jonathan takes two steps that communicate commitment to David. First off, Jonathan says, my life is devoted to you. Look at verse 3. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Remember, a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties that is governed by clearly defined expectations. Binding agreement between two parties. Clear expectations. A covenant lays out what I'm expected to do for you, and what you're expected to do for me. That's the kind of commitment Jonathan makes to David. Out of love, Jonathan binds himself to David. So that in a very real sense, Jonathan's life is devoted to his friend. He is bound before God to protect this man. And as the book continues, we'll see just how deep that devotion runs. Along with the covenant, Jonathan also tells David, my place is yielded to you. My life is devoted to you, and my place is yielded to you. Notice what happens in verse 4. Jonathan gives David his robe, his armor, and his weapons. Now you might think, well, that's nice. Jonathan is rich and David is poor, and Jonathan's sharing his stuff with his friend. That's nice. But this is much more than a kind gesture on Jonathan's part. In the first century, your clothes and armor represented your position. They were symbolic of your identity, your status, your place. You would never give these things away. And you certainly would not give them away to the person who seems destined to replace you but that's just what David does. It's uh, this is what, just what Jonathan does. It's a staggering statement. Jonathan is saying to David, What should have come to me, I now willingly give to you. He's not being coerced. He's not being he, willingly, I give you my place. We don't know when exactly Jonathan knew David was going to be king, but don't let that minimize what happens here. This is humility of the first rank or to put it just a little bit sharper, this is how someone gets into the kingdom of God through faith that bows before the One who is greater. At this point, I can't help but think of a later scene in Scripture that illustrates the magnitude of this response. It happens in the Gospel of John toward the end of chapter 3. Do you remember the moment? Jesus' ministry is thriving and people are flocking to Him. But that means by necessity that the crowds going to see John the Baptist are smaller than they used to be. And so some people come up to John and they say, Look, look, that guy who used to be following you, his ministry is bigger than yours now. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do, John? And do you remember what John says? He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, that's the same attitude Jonathan has towards David. When God's King is revealed, the only right response on our part is to decrease. To become less. So that He might become more. To bow before Him in devotion and in the submission of faith. He must increase. I must decrease. You know, this... This relationship between Jonathan and David is often singled out to teach on the importance of friendship in the Christian life. And on some level, that is certainly true. There are some things we could say about friendship here and from later chapters. But I would contend there's a deeper, more pressing application to be made at this point. Remember friends, David is not just any man. David is a type Of the Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is David's life foreshadows the life of Christ. David's life is a shadow of which Jesus is the substance. The ways that God works in David's life are fulfilled in the way the Father works in Jesus' life. That's what it means to say that David is a type of the Lord Jesus. And therefore... Jonathan and David's relationship is not just any old friendship. This relationship is a picture of how we, the church, relate to our King, the Lord Jesus. Like Jonathan, we must yield ourselves to God's King. Friends, there's no other way to enter God's Kingdom than to yield your place to Him. And we must devote our lives to His service even to the point of setting aside our desires to see Him exalted over us. Friends, this is why humility is the currency of God's kingdom. Because humility magnifies King Jesus and demonstrates our devotion, our commitment to His name. Like Jonathan, we must yield ourselves to God's King. But there's another side to the relationship. Like David the Lord Jesus rejoices in our response. David delighted in Jonathan more than any other earthly relationship. And Jesus deeply delights in the devotion of His church. Listen to me, friends. Our minds cannot begin to fathom the depth of joy Christ feels when His people say, you increase, I'll decrease. That makes Christ happy. It makes him rejoice. His soul rejoices with joy inexpressible to see his people say to him, you take my place. You run my life. You get raised up. I'll take the lower. He rejoices. Brothers and sisters, isn't your soul stirred up to think of the Lord of the universe rejoicing over your devotion? Doesn't this make you want to lay aside everything else and live solely for the glory of this King? Friends, that's a life well lived. That's the only life well lived. And what's more, that's the kind of life that enters and flourishes in God's kingdom. So let's pray together to that end whether it be in your community group or simply with other church members, let's ask the Father to deepen our devotion to Christ. That devotion begins with humility. So let's ask the Spirit to help us grow in that grace that we would display the kind of attitude that we see in Jonathan's life and then later in John the Baptist's life. How wonderful would it be for people to say of our church, you, you, know, you know Midtown Baptists, they don't have a lot of stuff, but they sure make much of Christ. Pray that that would be our testimony as a body of believers. He must increase, and we get the unspeakable privilege of decreasing, of being made lower for the sake of His name. You see, it's, it's about way more than friendship. It's about way more than Friendship. Jonathan's devotion to David compels us, compels us to offer our lives afresh to King Jesus, David's greater son. That's the takeaway. Well, I wish the second truth carried on with the same sort of encouragement from the first. I like like talking about devotion to God's King, the second truth's a bit more sobering. Beginning in verse 6, Saul gives us an entirely different picture, and the fact that it's between a father and a son should get our attention even more. Our second truth is opposition to God's king. Jonathan is devoted, Saul displays opposition to God's king. Like we said at the outset, the change in Saul's attitude toward David is alarming it does appear on some level that Saul is a deeply disturbed man. And it will only get worse over the remainder of the book. But at the same time, we must also remember that Saul is a rebellious man. He's not just deeply disturbed, he's also rebellious. We shouldn't read this chapter without remembering the events of chapter 15. Do you remember what happened? God gave Saul clear instructions in His Word And Saul deliberately refused to do what God commanded. So Saul is not a victim here. He is a rebel. And his life is a warning. What happens when a person turns from God and chooses to ignore God's Word? Well, look at Saul's life. What do you see? Chaos, fear, alienation, turmoil, hurt, heartache. In fact, consider with me the devastating effects of Saul's sinful rebellion and how that harms his life and those who are around him. First off, notice with me how quickly Saul's sin spirals downward. How quickly it spirals downward. It starts innocently enough in verses 6 and 7. As the army returns home from battle, the women greet them with a song of victory. Now understand, this is a typical Israelite song. If you were a Hebrew songwriter, this is how you would write it. They're not trying to intentionally slight Saul. To sing about thousands and then ten thousands is the poetic way to describe an overwhelming victory. It's just success on top of success. But that's not how Saul hears it. Look at verse 8. Saul interprets the song in the worst possible way. In his mind, this isn't a typical song. It's the beginning of an uprising. Notice the last line of the verse. What more can he have but the kingdom? How quickly David goes from a hero to a threat, even though he's done nothing to justify that fear. Still, this is where Saul's opposition begins. Very quietly, in his heart, with jealousy that's not where his opposition stays. Look at verses 10 and 11. Things spiral deeper as Saul's jealousy turns to rage. Once again, Saul is afflicted by a harmful spirit from God, which is a consequence of his disobedience. We've seen this before. Chapter 16. And as before, David plays music in hopes of soothing the king. But this time, there is no comfort. There's only anger. Saul hurls his spirit, at David not once, but twice. Friends, you see the spiral? What started in the heart with jealousy now spills out in rage as Saul tries to kill David. Still, the spiral goes deeper. Look at verses 12 to 16. Saul begins to recognize something is different about David, something or someone is supporting this young man, so Saul schemes. He puts David in charge of a military regiment. This is not a promotion. This is an attempt to put David in harm's way. Saul is playing the odds with sinister intent. If he can't kill David, then perhaps battle will. Perhaps the odds will catch up with the young man. At some point, a sword or a spear or an arrow or something will find its mark and David will be killed. Friends, you see how quickly Saul gets to this point? It didn't take very long. In a short span of time, he goes from jealousy to rage to sinister scheming. And that's the warning for us. The spiral of sin is terribly fast. And the direction is always downward. Sin is progressive. It's never satisfied. It's always hungry for more. And it's always looking to take you deeper. Always. What begins in the heart will soon be expressed in actions, and those actions will soon dominate your life. Oh, how dangerous it is to believe sin that begins in the heart is no big deal. It's just a bit of bitterness, it's just a little discontentment, it's just a smidge of lust. No one knows. I'm fine. No, friend, you're not fine. You're not fine. That bit of bitterness will become hatred. That little discontent will become soul-eating greed. And that smidge of lust becomes adultery. The spiral of sin is terribly fast. And the direction is always downward. Brothers and sisters, this is why confession and community are such vital aspects of the Christian life. Confession brings sin into the light where its grip is weakened, and community brings the sinner into fellowship where growth is encouraged. You see, confessing sin brings it into the light. Doing so in community brings me into fellowship where I can grow. Don't believe the lie that you can manage sin or keep it under wraps. Don't believe the lie that it's just a bit of bitterness in the heart that won't end up in hatred. Don't fall for the trap that it won't go any deeper. All of those things are the devil's voice. Not God's. And at the same time, don't lose sight of the means of grace God has provided. Means of grace that are available this very morning. Think about the logic of the cross, brothers and sisters. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, then that means God already knows the sins you have committed and Christ has already paid for them. Dwelling in the darkness is spitting upon the work of Christ. Bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. Ask a brother or sister to join you in the battle. Sin quickly spirals downward. Quickly. And that should make us quick to confess sin and live in community with one another. There's another effect in Saul's life we need to consider. Look at verse 17. Notice how easily Saul's sin uses others. How quickly it spiraled downward and how easily Saul uses others. Saul's first scheme didn't work. Uh, the, the odds didn't work in Saul's favor. There are no odds, by the way. It's just God. God. David wasn't killed in battle. In fact, he had even more success. The entire nation now loves him. That language about going out and coming in, that's the language that's also used to describe Joshua of, of leading God's people in the book of Numbers. So David is like Joshua in the people's mind. He, he, he is just, he's, he's rising. It's, it's, it's just rocket rise. His, Saul's scheme didn't work. So he comes up with another scheme. And this time he risks his own family. He offers his daughter Merab to David, but with one condition. David must continue to fight the Lord's battles. Now, that sounds very pious on Saul's part, as though he cares about the glory of God, but the truth is much more devious. Look at the end of verse 17. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. How dark does your heart have to be to use your own daughter as bait? And shockingly, Saul does it twice. David humbly turns down Saul's first offer, but soon after, Saul learns his other daughter, Michael, loves David. This is my opportunity, Saul thinks. Perhaps she'll be more enticing to David. So Saul offers her hand in marriage. And this time, Saul makes the deal seem more plausible to David. Remember, David's family is small. He doesn't have a lot. To marry the king's daughter would be expensive. So Saul makes the deal a bit more plausible. He doesn't want any money From David, which would be the custom. He just wants David to pay with bravery. And the price is simple. 100 dead Philistines with gruesome proof. 100 dead Philistines and you can have the king's daughter. But again, Saul's intent is sinister. Look at the end of verse 25. Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And we're going to look at David's actions in just a moment, but for now, we need to see, we, we need, see is not the right word, we need to feel the devastation sin has caused in Saul's life. Martin Luther used to speak of sin as causing humanity to curve inward on itself so that all we can see is what we want. Other people become pawns in our sinful quest to realize our desires. And that's what we see here with Saul. How easily sin turned Saul inward to the point of using other people, people made in God's image, people whom he called daughter, using them as nothing but tools for his own gain. He sells them off. Friends, this is why the New Testament puts such an emphasis on Christians loving one another in real tangible ways. That kind of love not only gives testimony to the love of God, but it also safeguards our hearts against sin's quest to turn us inward. Have you ever thought of the biblical commands to love one another in that way? I think we should. When I step out in faith to love and care for another Christian... I'm not just obeying God and doing good to another believer as significant as those things are. I'm also actively resisting sin because sin's pull is always to push me inward. You see? When I love others, I'm pushing back against sin's quest to curl me in on myself. Friends, what a powerful antidote for sin's pull. Even more, what a powerful encouragement to press on in love for one another. When you bear another Christian's burden in prayer, when you love them in a real tangible way, that is putting the flag down to say, I am fighting against sin. Both in my life and in the life of our church, sin's always curving us in like this. So when we love, we push back against it. It's it's more than just doing our duty to obey commands. It's more than just our duty to fulfill our membership covenant. It's about growing in Christ-likeness and resisting the power of sin. It should compel us to press deeper as a church in the call to love our neighbor as ourselves. Friends, I hope we see the value of these verses here from Saul's life. It would be easy to simply study these verses and make a few comments about Saul's madness. I could go on for 10 or 12 minutes about what kind of mental disorder Saul had You could do those kinds of things because people have done them. But if that's all we said, we would miss the exhortation God intends for us. We would miss the living nature of God's Word. We would miss the means of grace. Saul opposes God's King, and from his life, we take this exhortation to renew our allegiance to King Jesus and to His people. Well, that brings us to the end, to the final truth. From Jonathan, we've seen devotion to God's King. From Saul, we've seen opposition to God's King. And here at the end, we close with the exaltation of God's King. The exaltation of God's King. We talked at the beginning about how David's success is repeated throughout the chapter. Verse 5, verse 14, verse 30. But there's another repetition that should also get our attention. Perhaps you noticed it already. It's the reason for David's success. Three times we read about David and the Lord was with him. Verse 12, verse 14, and verse 28. Friends, this is why at every turn Saul's schemes fail. Because God Himself, the Lord of the universe, is determined to exalt David. Over and over, this truth comes to the fore. Just look with me, just briefly. Verse 14, David succeeds as a commander because the Lord is with him. Verse 18, David maintains his integrity and humility because the Lord is with him. Verse 27, David is able to strike down 200 Philistines because the Lord is with him. Verse 30, David wins the people's favor because the Lord is with him. You see, that's what sets David apart. God's presence. This chapter is not primarily about politics or or, uh, military strategy. It's about God's rock-solid, unwavering commitment to exalt His Anointed One and to do so for the good of His people. Brothers and sisters, this truth has incredible application to us as God's people today if we have the eyes to see it. As we see God's hand in David's success we're reminded of the nature of God's purposes. They are unstoppable. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? That's the declaration of this chapter. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for His people, and therefore nothing can stop what God determines to do. And at the same time, we must also remember that this promise comes to us only because of the Lord Jesus. Please hear me on this so that, we get, so that we get the encouragement right. Remember, David points to Christ. David points to Christ. So God's determination to exalt David against Saul's sinister schemes leads us directly to the cross. Yes, to the cross. Just as Saul schemed, but his schemes became the means of exalting David, so also the cross, which was intended to harm Christ, became the means of exalting Him and raising Him up. You see the connection? Saul meant to harm David, but his schemes exalted him. The cross meant to crush Christ, but instead it raised Him up. It's at the cross that we see most clearly the unstoppable purpose and plan of God. As the Son of God hangs there forsaken, and dying, we behold the sovereign power of God to overturn the world's schemes, crush sin's power, and bring to pass what God has promised from the beginning. As King Jesus satisfies God's wrath, we know for certain that nothing can ever stop the Father from carrying out His purpose for His people. The entire world could unite together to oppose God's King. The nations could rage, as Psalm 2 says, and Christ will still reign. You see, that is the true value of this text. 1 Samuel 18 is not giving you some vague encouragement about promises. Listen to me. It's not giving you a vague encouragement about promises. This chapter is giving you rock solid encouragement because it points you to a real man who died on a real hill and rose again to real life. It points us to Christ. That's the encouragement. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you remember the verse that follows that promise in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's our hope, brothers and sisters. God will exalt His King. God has exalted His King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a day coming very soon where that exaltation will be complete and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, there will be one question put before you. Are you devoted to Him or do you oppose Him? Goliath is dead and everything is different. That's 1 Samuel 18. King Jesus reigns and nothing can shake His kingdom. That's our hope. And so we pray with the church down throughout the ages. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me?